0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia da, everyone and welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as in this episode, we're going to be speaking with Mere Wendt. Now, Mere had an unusual childhood as she grew up in Samoa and Fiji. So we talk a lot about what it is that forms identity and the importance of culture. We also have some really fascinating conversations about racism, tokenism, and how we can go about fostering a better understanding of each other. I really enjoyed hearing about Mele's life, and given the fact that her father is a well-known poet and author, it was fascinating to hear about her life story and growing up in that context. And we also managed to fit in conversations about community governance and what it is that can be done to help people learn how to govern better. If you enjoyed this, then keep in mind there's about 200 other episodes in the back catalog as I'm trying to build up a database of stories of inspiring people. So be sure to check those out. And you can find out a lot more at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening in a podcasting app, why not hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Now let's get into this conversation with Mere. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Mere Wendt to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on here. We connected uh, probably weeks ago, maybe months ago, in terms of some of the work going on around governance and for not-for-profits and community sector. And I, um, we then had some exchanges about the podcast. And um, it's, so it's a really good chance to hear your story and find out about where you're from. Um, So if we could do that, we'll start there. And just tell us a bit about your background and your childhood. And in particular, like when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was that like?
1: So I was born in Apia, Western Samoa, um, a while ago now, um, to a Samoan father, Albert, of German ancestry heritage and obviously in Samoan, and a New Zealand British uh, Palangi woman Jenny uh, they had met here in Wellington actually um, before that and fell in love and went back to Samoa uh, after my father graduated from Victoria University and had my older sister Zena and then me and then my younger brother Michael and so I spent my first five, six years in Samoa growing up living um, in Mototua Anyway, uh, and then living on the Samoa College college campus when my father became principal, the first uh, local, first Samoan principal of Samoa College, which was a newly built college after Samoa became independent from New Zealand in 1962. And um, those were really formative years, actually, growing up around in that environment where we lived right next door to the hostel. And a lot of the students who lived on the big island of Savai, lived in the hostel. And so they were our babysitters and we used to hang out there um, next door, etc. I don't, my memories of, of being four or five are very, very scant. Like I don't, I can't really, I'm not one of those people who has a really good memory way back. Mm. But definitely um, growing up in that environment and staying connected with a lot of those people, who were students of my father's at the time, and also my mother, my mother's students as well, because my mother was a teacher at um, Apia Primary School. And so a lot of the people now in Samoa um, who are leading, you know, various government agencies and things like that are, are former students of theirs. And then when I was six, we went to Fiji to live in Fiji because my father got a job working um, in the extension services of of the University of the South Pacific. And so we spent three years, when I was six, seven and eight, living on the University of the South Pacific campus at uh, at, um, Laudala Bay in Suva. And that was a really influential part of my life as well, growing up in Fiji at that age and loved it. I mean, my whole childhood, I absolutely loved. And then when I was eight, we moved back to Samoa and um, I went to intermediate school and the first couple of years of college, high school. And then we went back to Fiji again, a second time, because my father became um, an English literature professor at the University of the South Pacific as well. Mm -hmm. And so I lived there from the ages of 14 to 17 And then um, came to New Zealand to go to Victoria University of Wellington. So all of my um, childhood was spent in very much in the Pacific.
0: Mm. And
1: I came here as an 18-year-old to go to university, and I've lived here ever since.
0: Wow. So just thinking and reflecting about that childhood, it sounds like you were jumping from back and forth there. Did you have a sense of your own identity in terms of a national identity? like Because you're living in Fiji, but now we're back here and now we're there, or... Or what was that yeah. for
1: you? Yeah, I mean, it would have been really challenging. And I think at times it was chale- challenging. Being uh, being Afakasi, or, you know, being biracial, i.e. half pālangi and half Samoan, was mm-hmm. a challenge in itself. And I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, and also living in both countries. Uh, but I think because my parents ensured... Uh, that we had a very strong Samoan one identity that made things a lot easier for us. So when I was growing up, I don't know how, how that was done, how they did that, but I, I had a very strong sense of self. I knew I was, you know, if people ask me, Oh, what are you? Which they did in Fiji. I'd say, I'm Sam one. Hmm. And even though I might not have looked it, you know, I was blonde and green eyed Um. In Fiji that wasn't a problem because it was so multicultural and I was an outsider anyway and people just sort of tended to accept what you said. But then I I definitely remember going back to Fiji at the age of eight and, you know, being challenged, you know, people would say, Oh, what are you? Oh, I'm Samoan. And because I didn't look very Samoan, you know. I that was that, that could be a bit challenging at times. But thankfully, my parents really um, wanted to ensure that we had a very strong strong sense of self and who we were in in the world. And I had all my Went family around us—a very very huge family, strong, close family—and um, that also I think provided me with a really good sense of 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 support and and love
0: you know that's really good i would love to know a little bit more about samoa <laughs> mm-hmm. and just like basic things like the the, the where you were living like mm. how many people were there yeah um, and and sort of set the scene because some people listening including me have never been to samoa um, right. how many people are there um you know i've i've kind of know roughly about it, but I would love to hear a bit more. And then I'd love to learn a little bit more about the culture. Um, When I was at University of Canterbury studying um, here, one of my friends was from Samoa and he was an international student, came over and has gone back. And I've always thought it'd be nice to find him again and catch up and maybe go visit him one day. So maybe as a bit of preparation for that, just describe it for us.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I'd say that I, you definitely need to go and visit Samoa is a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. I'm yet to meet anybody who's been to Samoa for the first time uh, and and come back and said they didn't they didn't like it. So, because I, I, I think it's there's a real um, genuineness about it, um, and yeah. So, you know, I think. Um, the, you know in terms of the population it's been a similar, similar size population since when, since when I was growing up so it sort of went from about 160,000 to now there's about 180,000 people and there are two main islands Upolu and Savai and the capital Apia is on Upolu and I grew up in the, in the capital, so I'm very much a city city slicker, you know, I'm a city girl. Um, I didn't live in the village. Obviously, a lot of Samoans live in the village, in the village, you know, in their village. And even in Samoa today, whilst, you know, westernization and, and all of that, globalism is very much entrenched throughout every, every part of Samoa, yeah. the, the um, people still, you know, a lot of people still live in, in their particular villages. Mm. And so I have certain, I'm associated with certain villages, um, and we would visit them occasionally with, with our family when there were big events, Mm -hmm. but I lived in a, I lived in sort of in, 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 in the, in the city, if you like the, the town of Apia and, um, before we lived at the Samoa College campus, we lived in a street called Centipede Alley and these houses were mostly occupied by expatriates, you know, people who had been brought over to Samoa to work at various jobs. And they were, these houses were government owned. And so there were a few locals, local families like us, but, um, so I grew up in Centipede Alley with a whole host of different people from all over the world, Mm. um, whose fathers mostly, I don't know if there were ever any mothers who were actually the, the, ex, the person who was brought over to work um, were working at various government departments. And school was very much for me like, I think what, what you know, like growing up in New Zealand would have been like in the, in the, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to an English-speaking school, although most schools in Samoa would have been Samoan-speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's changed a lot now, um, but we didn't really. Unfortunately for us, we we you know Samoan is not our first language, and so when I came back from Fiji at the age of eight after that first stint in Suva, we kind of struggled because um, although we were at English speaking schools and the and the um, the teaching was all in English at, during the interval and lunch times. And when kids were talking to each other, they often spoke in Samoan and we were missing out because we, didn't, we couldn't really understand. So our parents sent us off to, first of all, to Samoan language classes uh, with this woman who was the Peace Corps uh, Samoan language teacher. Oh, yeah. We would go to her house three afternoons a week, honestly seven. we hated it like <laughs> because it was a real you know instead of just going and playing after school, we'd have to trudge off to her house and sit there and she had a blackboard and you know we were, we were getting it taught. that Simon language taught that way. Mm. Um, but actually you know so she taught us the basics and then after that we went to um, what they call um, past the school. So I don't know whether you know, but uh, in, in Samoa, the pastor of a church will run after school classes and they'll be in, you know, that's, it's a way, I suppose, of getting the kids together in the afternoon, keeping them occupied. And so at pastor school, you go, you know, you do maths and you do English and you do all sorts of things. It's not just about Bible study. Mm-hmm. And so they packed us off to my father's um, cousin's church in Viala. And we went there three afternoons a week, and um, yeah, so that was quite formative and helpful, really, in the sense of us being able to better understand Samoan language. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, I think for Samo in Samoa now, uh, it's it's as I said before, it's uh, it's getting very Westernized. You can go out, have some fant- there's some amazing restaurants there, um, but it's still it still is Samoa in terms of its cultural heritage and the way it it has always done things. You know, it's a real, you can get a real McCoy cultural experience when you go to Samoa now, even, even when you are a tourist, which I think is, is, is fantastic.
0: Mm. So what would be some of the cultural traits or the things that set it apart?
1: Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean our 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 cultural traditions, um, and so you know, s- singing and dancing and doing. So if you even if you stay at a hotel, there'll be a fear night where you can eat amazing Samoan food, have a big feast as well as sit down and enjoy an amazing floor show where you know mm. um, there'll be a performance of Samoan dance and singing, dancing and singing, etc. Um, but there's but yeah, what else? I mean, I think church plays a big part in people's lives, and so even um, even when you go as a tourist, I think a, a, a common experience is for for tourists to perhaps go to the to the church near the hotel where they're staying, just to sort of experience Samoan culture there in that setting with the singing, mm. beautiful singing, etc., um, and just to you know hang out with some locals, etc.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so and, thinking about
0: your own life, I'm just curious, you know, you were there up until seventeen or or you know, in yeah. yeah. In, uh, how would you say it's shaped the person that you've become today? You know, that cultural rooting and, and background.
1: Mm. Um, I think it's absolutely very, very strongly shaped who I am and how I how I you know my whole being and how I operate Mm. um there I think there are some really strong core values that permeate throughout um Samoans at Samoan culture and 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 the way we're raised yeah and you know I think one of the and those those are things like service so tautua so it's very much of a servant leadership model Mm. and um and also other things like um it's about what you do, not what you say. So it's, it's through actions that you show someone you love them, or that you are giving, you know, that you are serving. Um, what else? So uh, alofa, you know, love, and love is not a really good uh, translation for the term alofa. It me, alofa means more than that. Reciprocity is absolutely central to how we how we are as Samoans. You know, it's give and take. That's why, when, that's why we, we, with things like uh, weddings and twenty uh, firsts birthdays and uh, births of new children and all sorts of things, funerals, mm. that's why they're really huge. And it's about, you know, giving and helping the family out, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the core values, I think, that really have affected uh, me and my leadership. And, and, you know, and, and, and how I operate.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting what you talk about servant leadership as well, because I think if we go back, say, 20 years, that wouldn't have been a concept that people were open to because it mm-hmm. was more market-driven, profit-driven, like how can we be more efficient in terms mm-hmm. of money-making? <laughs> but yeah. I've, I've certainly sensed, and you probably have as well, that there seems, even in Western culture, there seems to be an understanding that we've just missed A whole depth of conversation. And you look at writers like Brene Brown, you know, people who are writing about vulnerability and courage is being vulnerable. You know, those are things that I think a couple decades ago people would have gone, you know, no, greed is good. (laughs) So Uh it's really interesting what you're saying because I think there's a lot that we can learn that we've maybe not taken on board. And I love the concept of servant leadership, Uh you know, that that it's actually it's not all about you it's it's actually about serving others and then it's through doing that through taking the action that you gain the mana or the respect because it's not you you can't heap mana on yourself it's Mm. something that comes through your actions isn't it
1: yes and and you are given it by other people Mm. and so i do yeah that that is very that's one other aspect that um that i do want to add that it's always about the collective the good of the collective. It's never right. about you as an individual, and it was really interesting growing up because um, you know I had you know being being bicultural. There were always these competing sort of interests, like um, individualism and standing up for your individual rights, mm-hmm. and and of course my my parents brought us up in a very I think a very liberal way, in that we were expected to really articulate. Uh, what how we were feeling and to and to and to argue and to stand up for ourselves and mm. to be able to you know to communicate which was quite contrary to to um, sort of the mode of parenting that you know, and 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 how kids were other, you know, Samoan kids were raised.
0: Right. So it was
1: that on the one hand, like my individual rights as a child, and you know, when you argue with your siblings, etc., versus it's not about you as an individual; it's about the collective. You know, mm-hmm. share, share, and share alike, and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, um, yeah,
0: yeah. No, that's really good. I I have a little background in the sense of I lived in Japan for five years. And Japanese Mm -hmm. culture is also very much, it's not about the individual, it's about Mm -hmm. the collective. And you see it in Japan. I actually did a podcast episode about what we can learn from their culture, because one of the things is decision-making. It shouldn't be Stephen that makes the decision. It should be consultative, involving people, having meetings before the actual meeting, and then coming together to make the decision, rather than being a Western sort of, well, this is what the leader says.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, in theory, that's how that's how it's supposed to work. I think in Samoan culture, but um, in many ways, often it doesn't. You know, you get the we we you know we have a matai system, which is our, our is our chiefly system, and you know theoretically, absolutely matai are just the representatives of the collective of their of their Ainga potopoto, their extended family, and how and their, how they behave and what they do and say and in in terms of their directives are in the best interests of that collective. Mm. and they aren't supposed to be the autocrat, you know dictating this, that, and the other. um but yeah you know, I mean often in times in many families that's just how it operates. Yeah. and some of them definitely you know sort of abuse their their positions of power. Mm. like in any society, like in all societies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's no perfect place or way or or ultimately where people and humans have, yeah, shortcomings, don't they? Yeah. I'd love to turn back. I think what we'll do is weave in these cultural aspects as we talk, but I'd also love to hear a bit more about what it was like for you arriving in New Zealand, because as you've said, you grew up with the two cultures and you probably had, the Samoan identity was quite strong, mm. but yet you arrive in New Zealand and people might not assume you were Samoan yeah. when they first saw you. So what was that like coming to Victoria?
1: Um on the one hand it was it was it was easy because every few years growing up we would holiday we would my our, you know our parents would bring us here to new zealand to holiday okay. to visit my grandparents my mother's parents who lived here in new zealand and so i was familiar with visiting new zealand so it's not as if i had never been to new zealand before and didn't know what it was like so i i i was I was au fait with New Zealand. So coming to live as an 18 year old in Wellington and my grandparents lived in Wellington, by the way. So I was familiar with Wellington, but on the other hand, it was a culture shock in the sense that I expected. And remember I came from Fiji and in Fiji for the last four years um, as being multicultural and, no, you know, nobody questioned my identity. But boy, in 1986, Wellington was a really, really different place to what it is now. Right. And, um, and I was, yeah, so people would meet me and I think they were just really intrigued because they would say, oh, where are you from? Or what are you? And I'd go, I'm Samoan. And they'd look at me and they'd go, and I had people who were just absolutely blatantly to say no you're not you can't be Samoan you speak English too well like Mm -hmm. seriously so I encountered quite a lot of racism as well Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily directed at me but the the comments I just found really really um, parochial and just uninformed and just so stereotypical. And I used to talk about how, because I didn't fit, in, because in, 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 what I saw was people who just operated with pigeonholes you know and if you didn't fit in that in in a particular pigeonhole then something was wrong and people couldn't quite navigate that couldn't quite conceptualize that so because I didn't look like a Samoan I didn't act like a Samoan you know I was going to university I was very very articulate I would I would you know be in be in tutorials and I'd be contributing and and people would be like wow like who is this person where did she come from she can't be from Samoa she's far too articulate and confident and educated. And so I just used to, I remember writing to my parents, cause you know, in those days we wrote letters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and occasionally, cause they were still living in Fiji actually in my first two years, they came uh, to live in New Zealand a couple of years after I was at university. But I, and even on the phone, I remember, and even being really, really upset about some of the racism that I encountered, which I hadn't really ever encountered before right and yeah that was that was really quite confronting
0: yeah it's, and it, and upsetting it's interesting as well because it wasn't necessarily directed at you but fundamentally what people were talking about was racism
1: yeah and
0: it did impact you you know what i i'm not expressing that very well but yeah. it was like um, they weren't because almost like you were within the club, based on how you looked, they then felt okay to make assumptions and mm-hmm. and put down other people who weren't there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, and there were some really there there were there were some ab- absolutely directly confrontational racist um, incidences. You know, yeah. I would go along with um, some of my friends to a nightclub. And the bouncers would let me in, and me and my other, you know, fair friends, fair-skinned friends, but not let in some of my others. Mm. And um, one incident in Auckland when I was about 20, um, I we weren't ref- we weren't allowed in at all because you know. And I think it probably, I mean, I don't know whether it still happens now, I wouldn't know because I don't go nightclubbing, but mm. certainly in those days, it was very, very common for all the bars to be really, really racist and not let in brown people because they just assumed that, you know, we'd cause trouble. But I remember writing a letter to, to complain to the owner of one of the, one of the nightclubs because of the absolutely racist treatment. We didn't have the Human Rights Commission in those days. Otherwise, I would have filled a, filled a complaint in. Yeah but yeah so some of it was 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 blatant um and including in some of our tutorials i remember walking out of a tutorial because we were looking at an um an a Austra- it was australian literature we were reading an australian book and um a woman in my tutorial and several comments were made about um the content it was about an aboriginal um woman, girl growing up and on the station, etc. You know, you, we were dealing with some really sensitive and I took all of that very, very, I was very sensitive about all of that. And I remember getting really upset and leaving a tutorial because of just the, mm-hmm. I had to endure listening to some, you know, some of those really racist comments. But anyway, you know, I always called it out.
0: Yeah. Well, that's important. And that's actually what I'm hoping people listening are, are thinking about things that they're part of conversations because the reality is that you can be having a conversation in a side way that's perpetuating injustice. Mm. And you need to have the courage to stand up because how many many times has there been a group conversation or something and somebody makes a comment and you think, well, I'll just let it slide. That's the moment when you actually have to step up and, and stand up even though there's no one in the room that is being impacted directly it yep. still is perpetuating a way of thinking that isn't acceptable and yeah. and that's the challenge I think is to to be courageous enough to do that and um,
1: yeah, especially when you're younger and the pressure for you to conform to your with 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 your peers a eh, and to fit in um but thankfully, you know there was one thing that my parents really brought us up to have a very strong sense of um social justice and to call things out and to and to if something's not right to do something about it to act and so i think from quite a young age i've always been somebody who hasn't let things slide because i've thought no that's not right i should correct that and and um i mean yes sometimes as i said you know fitting in was was sometimes more important and so you'd let it slide. But actually, after several quite confronting and hurtful incidences, what I learned from those is to, 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 to be more confident to actually not not put up with that and to actually yeah. call it out. Yeah. And the older I've got, the more... The more confident I am in calling no, you don't it out. <laughs> yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, well, that's, so that's one of the purposes of the podcast is to normalize these sorts of conversations. Yeah. Because my hope is that somebody listening won't have thought about this stuff before. And maybe we'll be in a staff room meeting or getting some water, you know, whatever, and, and we'll have the chance to have the conversation mm. so you're studying at university what, what were you studying did you have a sense of career or what interested you in the world or yeah no
1: no so you know mm. look I've, I've never was one of these people who um, had a had a strong career direction you know mm. goal mm. I just went with the flow and I had I was I was really I struggled with deciding what I would study at university because I'd been up until senior high school I was really good in both the arts and the sciences right and so I enrolled at Victoria University and not just before enrolling the year before, you know, my parents, my mother would, was got all the university calendars and from New Zealand and she got, had them there. And my job was to read them and have a look and see what I might want to study. Yeah. And I, and she said, look, what about the, the you know, computer science? Mm-hmm. And at the time computers were just new and it was all very revolutionary. Oh, and yeah. I You're was like, Oh 1980s, yeah. right. Yeah. And, yep. and I, this was like 1986. And um, she goes, what about computer science? If you, you know, you like the sciences. So anyway, I, and at the time, you couldn't do a double degree. Because if, if I had been able to do that, I would have. I would have done an arts degree and a science degree. But anyway, so I enrolled at Victoria University, theoretically, to do a Bachelor of Science majoring in computer science and I did okay in my first year and I took English, the, the stage one English paper as part of my science degree, because thankfully you could have a few small number of credits in your science degree that were non-science. So I chose to do stage one English. Anyway, I'm, I passed everything in that first year, but yep. you know, I was 18, I was in a new country, I first time, first time living away from home. I had a really good time, you know, I mentioned the nightclubs earlier. <laughs> yep. um, but I wasn't really into it like the computer science stuff I managed just to scrape by the stage one computer science course so then I enrolled in my second year all in stage two computer science which was very math orientated operations research and computer science I enrolled in that and I just hated it I wasn't even interested and I was partying a lot you know I was having a really good time and so I failed I failed um quite first time in my life I'd ever encountered any failure right
0: yeah Yeah.
1: and I so I was taking six courses I failed four of them and I lost my scholarship because you were supposed to pass 50 percent of your courses every year minimum of 50 percent and so I lost my scholarship and it was like major you know trauma in my life I thought what am I going to do so I switched to a BA in English Literature and I continued doing that. And of course I loved it. You know, I was I I knew this stuff and I was good at it and I but I was more interested in it. And so yeah, two years later I finished with a BA in English literature.
0: Right. So yeah. had that had that been something in your childhood that you'd always enjoyed reading and we hadn't really gone into that but
1: yeah well you see being the daughter of the writer and you know professor albert went um i was kind of trying to sort of do something different i think it was also another thing reason why i enrolled in be in a science degree right um i grew up among with artists in the arts because of my father's involvement as a writer and you know and in samoa and fiji you know we i had all these artists and other creatives around me growing up. Mm. And so I was, and both my parents were teachers. This was the other thing. I was also trying to avoid being a teacher. Well, what did I end up doing after my BA, um, graduating with a BA? I went right. teach training and I became <laughs> a teacher. Um, so yeah, it, the arts was something that were very much a key influence in, right. in our lives growing up because of my father.
0: Even growing up, you remember meeting artists and having them around for lunch, and this was a big part of the family.
1: A huge part. And also, you know, and when I was even quite from a young age, um, listening in on the conversations, Mm. and um, we became the bartenders of the parties that my parents used to throw. Okay. (laughs) And yeah, and from, you know, I could mix a, a, you know, a Bacardi and Coke when I was eight years of age, and we were the barman the bar, the bag I was the bar girl right. and um and I used to pass around the hors d'oeuvres and you know the and from a very young age and and, and then um even in my teens i 'd participate in those conversations as well, which just were amazing and mm. and really awesome that that my parents were okay for me for us growing up to um, because this is very for your right. children to actually be around when you've got company adult company mm. um but yeah i mean and even when i was like 15 i'd even pour myself a glass of wine and sit down and and can and can and be a part of the conversation which right. is very grown up but yeah. absolutely fantastic it
0: sounds very like very it. privileged yeah. <laughs> And had your father, had he published poetry at that time as well? So he was kind of known within the arts community?
1: Yeah. yeah. So his first novel, Sons for the Return Home, came out when I was about five. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. It, I mean, it was a big deal. And that was really... Um, you know, I've got a photo that I was looking at the other day of a family photo of us on one of our holidays in New Zealand that appeared and that photo appeared as part of a feature article on him in the New Zealand Women's Weekly oh, when right. I was five. Yeah. Mm. Um, so very much so. I mean, but that's that's also, that's, so that's been a huge influence in my life as well, but it's also yeah. been, been, there've been some negatives, there've been some downsides to that as well.
0: Mm. Yeah well if you're willing to go into it i'd be interested in downsides because i think it's always good to know those things but maybe just before we do that so in terms of the yeah the creative side of things and the the richness that came from that i guess that meant that studying literature was a it was quite a natural path as well then
1: an absolute natural path i mean yeah. we were studying authors that were family friends right <laughs> <laughs> i mean that sounds Really, as Marty would say, a bit whakahi, a bit sort of show But that was the reality. I mean, and, and not just Pacific and Māori writers, even others. So, you know, there would be international conferences or whatever. And, and writer friends of my father's would even come and come to Samoa and Fiji. And, of course, they'd always, they'd come over for dinner or many would stay with us. Right. And we were, you know, we there, there were people who would stay with us or that we would host at home. And I'd have no idea who these people were, like Frank. Frank Sargison, who was a New Zealand right. author, and yeah. um, Ngugi who who is a huge African. I mean, I had, and he was huge even then, but I had no idea who these people were and how right. big they were in the literature world.
0: they just show um, up at the table and they're having some uh, glass and, of yeah. wine. And
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'd be serving them their food and stuff like that. And then I got to New Zealand and when I really started to study literature it would be like, oh, oh, that was the African guy who came and, <laughs> came and stayed with us in some, or, you know, yeah. things like that. It, was really, well, it gives oh, you
0: a it's different a, perspective, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, well it does. It also, it I, I learned from a very young age that um, some really VIP people, like really very important people, mm. prime ministers, you know, famous authors, they're just human beings, like you and I, you know, yeah. like, and, and, you know, they've got their flaws and their sense of inadequacies or whatever, just like you and I. So I think that was a really good lesson for me too, that yeah. doesn't matter who you are, how important you are. We're all humans and we all share the same thing so some of the downsides of being growing up in the shadow of albert wint was um huge expectations i think on the one hand but also um people can be really nasty and and jealous and um just yes some kids you know kids can be really nasty so for example if i got an a grade in something that i wrote in an essay Mm -hmm. kids would say to me oh your father wrote that you know, you know, or your father helped you write that. And in fact, the absolute opposite was, was, was true. So my parents being teachers, I mean, I think teachers are the first people as parents to never help their kids with homework. I mean, seriously, I had no, my parents, my, my, mother was a teacher as well. I go, mom, can you help me with this? homework? She always put it back on me. What no? What have you done? Have you looked there? Have you done this? And so she didn't. They were really hands off. Right. And in fact, anytime <laughs> I went to my father to help with, some, with a writing piece, he would just say, <laughs> I, I never forget. And it actually, this has been a really good lesson. He would say, just keep it simple. Why are you trying to use all those big words? So, you know, I try and use, I think, I think when you're trying to write really well, you think, oh, I've got to use all these big words and make myself sound really flash. Mm. And he would just always say, just keep it simple. Right. <laughs> he said, if you're trying to say that. So I'd say, he'd say, what are you trying to say? And I'm like, I'm trying to say blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, just say that. You <laughs> <laughs> would never edit. No, like, so my parents never helped. So people were horrible. They would go, "Oh, your father wrote that. Your pa- your parents helped you do that." Yeah. And um, so yeah, it was just. And people were just natu- sometimes just naturally mean because I come from a very privileged, you know, position. Right. Your father's famous. It just, yeah, just kids can, and not just kids, adults. Mm-hmm. Adults can be quite spiteful. I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There can be a bit of jealousy as well. And yeah. and it kind of outworks in negative ways. Yeah. But I do like that advice for all of life. Keep yeah. it simple. That's actually something that I often say. Um, I work as a lawyer. So I often say clients will come up with these ideas. And usually it's like, well, actually, what do you want to do?
1: Yeah.
0: K-I-S-S. Kiss. Keep yeah. it simple, stupid. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> just, just don't let's not have all this unusual structures let's just get it to the heart of it and we'll just do that and yeah it's a really good advice for all types of situations yeah.
1: and <laughs> so- professionally it has it has held me in really really good stead you know i'm a really good i think really good communicator really good writer yeah um because of that
0: yeah oh that's really good so what did happen next you you were studying to become a teacher is that the career path that you went down
1: yeah i'd had no idea what to do with my ba and it was like oh okay and at the time there weren't that many options and i didn't really have very it wasn't good career information available so i just thought i'll just go teacher training because it was just a one-year course a graduate um, teacher training program in secondary education right. to become a high school teacher so I went um, teach training and I did that and then I was went became a high school teacher and I um, I was I was I did that for four or five years mm. yeah and then yeah. after having after having a child so I, I during my teach training year at the at the sorry at the beginning just after graduating from teach training college I um, had a child um in a short in a in a short relation in a relationship that was very, very that was short and um and so yeah i was teaching i was a single parent for a little while and then i met um ite and we got together as a blended family he had two children from his previous marriage
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i had a son Teha, who was 3 mm-hmm. we got married and we had this instant family and the kids were 3 5 and 7
0: Wow. I moved
1: to Wellington where Etie was based. And, um, cause at the time I was, I'd moved to Auckland and, um, when we had our uniting baby Sina, our, our fourth child, um, there was just no way that I could continue teaching and have four little children right. who were, who were, you know, a baby five, seven and nine. And yeah. so I decided I'd, Work part time, and I got a part time job te- uh, working. Sorry, in the international office at Victoria University of Wellington all right looking after the scholarship students of which i had been one once and it was perfect because it was 20 hours a week and i that it that led to me working becoming the founding pacific liaison officer for victoria university and again that was a 20-hour week position which was really suitable for my family life managing all of that and then that grew into a full-time role and then i started managing the victoria university domestic student uh, recruitment operation was called the liaison office. And so I was at Victoria for nine years. Mm. And then sounds like
0: given your own background and your own history, like you'd experienced the highs and lows of being somebody coming to the university, hadn't you? So you could probably be more sympathetic with um, what people are going through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's definitely why they a big plus bonus of why they hired me into that role. Mm -hmm. so yeah and then I worked at Victoria um, and and then somebody mentioned hey there's this role going at Fulbright the CEO role of Fulbright are you interested and I went oh yeah and so Mm. I applied for that role absolutely believing there was no way I would get it and then I got the role and I worked there for 10 years I loved it it was a great gig but after, you know, towards the 10-year period, there wasn't anything more in, it, in the role for me to learn. And yeah. I'm, I'm somebody who's always loved a, a challenge and always wanted to keep learning and, some, and having things that are new and different. And so I left, um, you know, the Fulbright role and decided to work for myself. And so for the last five and a half years, I've been working from home as an independent board chair uh, and, and board member and a consultant.
0: Yeah, so yeah, oh, that's great. And I think Jenny Gill had done the role that you're talking about with Fulbright a few years before that. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So, um, There's I took on the, on the role. on
0: the podcast about three months ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah listen yeah, to that one. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I took on the role after Jenny, and okay. interestingly, I was only the fourth executive director of Fulbright in, uh, sixty-five years.
0: Wow seriously position appointments (laughs) (laughs) well
1: Jenny did it for 10 years I did it for 10 years but the previous two gentlemen the founding person did it for 25 years and the next one did it for like 20 years
0: yeah yeah that's amazing I think when I spoke with Jenny if I remember correctly she talked about how much she enjoyed today meeting up with people that she had helped get the scholarships for yeah, And, you know, 15 years ago, I could see your potential. You went away and did the study and now you've come back and she really yes. enjoyed that part. Have, have you enjoyed that as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the other added dimension that's really enhanced that is is social media and Facebook. So, you know, I've got hundreds of um, Fulbright connections, especially the grantees. And so it's wonderful being able to stay in touch, you know, on a regular basis them and they're seeing their lives, um, you know, through Facebook and many of them and not just the young ones, even the other one, you know, the scholars, you know, the, the older lot who had Fulbright Awards, see what they're doing professionally, but also profi- personally, you know, having having getting married or getting partners and or having children and moving yeah. here and just seeing them, yeah, go through life. It's fantastic. It's lovely. Yeah,
0: that's cool. Well, I'd love to talk about what you're doing today and the, the roles that you've taken on. In particular, it'd be, it'd be really good to chat about the governance um, mm. project that you've been involved in um but just before we do that i'm i'm just really curious given that you came over in the late 1980s and you were describing new zealand as it was mm. just thinking about new zealand as it is today because mm. in the context people may listen to this interview in the future but as we're talking the black lives matter movement is kind of sprung up mm-hmm. more so than before um we're recording this at the end of july 2020 um mm. and i'm just curious because yeah i think Racism is still there, um, but just for your own reflections, given your unique background. Um...
1: Yeah, well, I think in you know, we, I talked earlier about you know, 1986 was a very different place in Wellington, and over the years, Wellington's become a lot more cosmopolitan, etc. I mean, I remember that even the sorts of restaurants that you could go and eat out at in the late 80s, you know, were pretty limited. And um, the waterfront was nowhere near as beautiful as as what it is now. So Wellington was kind of ugly. The weather was... It just seemed to be dreary and um, horrible and just not a lot to do here. So I think developmentally, Wellington's become a fantastic city in the waterfront and restaurants and, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think um, culturally people, because New Zealanders are so well-travelled, you know, over time, um, people's attitudes I think are a lot more open and knowledgeable about different cultures and, and traditions and different pe- people from part, different parts of the world. Yeah. And, um, and so their outlooks, you know, are much better in many ways than they were, <laughs> than they were then. Um, but I think the racism has probably just become, I think it, it was definitely there when I, when I arrived and, it, and it's still there. I just think it's become a lot more, uh, hidden and or obtuse in the way it, it, it manifests itself
0: mm.
1: so i think it's there's, def, there's definitely been huge improvements I, I mean i think um i think in many ways people are a hell of a lot better than the, than they were before
0: mm. so
1: they, oh god i'm not sounding very articulate here but but the racism that exists now in New Zealand is just a lot more subtle and it's, it, it doesn't necessarily come out in a very blatant way,
0: mm.
1: but it's all through microaggressions, actually, in many cases. So it's often really hard to pinpoint.
0: Yeah. And even so for what myself. Would be, what would be an example of a microaggression or something, just to name it? Or, well,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, even just recently, you know, at a restaurant, I asked... I asked this i just noticed i asked this the person i don't know I, I just asked a question and i just the this woman just looked at me like, How dare you even question that or something? and I thought, well, if I actually was a sort of a a Langi man, would you react in the same way? Mm. you know so for me that that intersectionality of being a woman, a brown woman. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel it. Sometimes you think, oh, did they react to me? Like, why did they react like that? Is it because I'm a brown woman or, or is it that, or whatever, you know, it's really hard. Honestly, Stephen, it's really, really hard to actually articulate sometimes.
0: Yeah. No, I I hear you. I understand. I, this is completely different context. So please take it that, that way. But when I lived in Japan, I was not Japanese and I never felt, I love Japan. I love the food, the culture, like it's amazing. Mm. The history, I absolutely love it, but I never ever felt like I would be Japanese. You know what I mean? Um, And so it's, but I couldn't have articulated it in in any one instance, Mm. but certainly when we had finished our four years in Tokyo, we felt like, okay, it's time to leave this, this is, it's been a wonderful experience, but it's time to get back to New Zealand in some way. Mm. Um, But it's really hard to articulate why we felt it. You know, it was just Mm. more of a, we sensed it rather than any one thing. So
1: Plus yeah, and you do, and when you go I've been to Japan a few times and when you when you physically stand out and you are so different to the to the rest of the of the population, yeah. there you know. But also being because uh, 'cause you're American, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I was born in America. I actually moved to New Zealand when I was seven. So right. my accent isn't actually very accurate. <laughs>
1: yes, but, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. But you can detect an American accent. And yeah. and the other thing I, you know, that I have that I encountered both in the eighties when I was here and, and I had one of my best friends was an American exchange student, but it also when I was executive director of Fulbright was anti Americanism, mm. anti American sentiment sentiments expressed by Kiwis, by New Zealanders. I think that's improved over time. So right. I don't know whether you've encountered that, but I've certainly have seen it and I've, I've encountered it and some of it's really blatant actually. Yeah. And you know, you know, the poor American person in front of you get bears the brunt because of a New Zealanders distaste for president Bush or, or what happened in world war two or whatever, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, this stuff can be quite real.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. If I reflected more, I, I think you're right there. There definitely have been instances, but I tend to be more of a water off the duck's back kind of personality. So I think you just, well, it's that person, move on. But this is the point, this is why I'm loving this conversation because some people won't have ever thought about these things. And, mm. and that's, that's really important to help mm. the conversations. And one of the things I'd really be keen for your input is uh, I think there can be a temptation to, um I guess, tokenism is the word i'm looking for we're gonna have a conference we need someone to open it with a karakia Mm. who can we get in they're going to come in they're going to do the karakia for three minutes and then they're leaving Mm. and there's no one that we've we haven't i guess what i'm trying to say is we haven't taken the active steps to make sure that there's representation in the room Mm. and yet we're trying to um, show that we're sensitive and show that we're Mm. On board culturally and and yet there's a massive gap there between the intention and and the reality
1: yeah yeah absolutely and uh, that's a, that's that's one of the things that i've um, really tried to help um, address and to improve in the organizations that i've worked with and for mm. in the boards that i've been on uh in 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 my whole you know, being is to is to really consider that, and I think there has to be. I think it's about cultural intelligence and um, and people really becoming more culturally au fait mm. with um, with embracing diversity and, and bra- embracing difference. But in terms of tangata whenua, I think that's that's a whole other dimension, and and and, and especially in Aotearoa, and knowing. Mm. As tau iwi, as I, I'm a visitor to this land, I, I'm not tangata whenua, knowing, knowing the relationship, knowing the history of this country and, um, and understanding what it is, you know, ma, the Māori world, te ao Māori, mm and then really embracing it and but using not using it but being a part of it and and, and in terms of incorporating it into your professional working environment doing it in a genuine well informed way yeah. so the tokenism stuff ain't going to cut it anymore like i think the whole black lives matter thing is what it, what it's doing it, it's it's really eliciting um a lot of a lot more people coming forward and a lot more strength and and it's empowering people to go, well, that's not good enough anymore.
0: Yeah. That
1: might have been fine in the in the nineties in the noughty, in the naughties, but in actually in 2020 and as we move on, our relationship with Mardi and how we do our business with how we are as a board and the organisation we lead, we need to do this in a much more genuine way. And when you when people talk about it, you know the the principles of te tiriti or waitangi. What does that mean? And and how do you, how do you really embody that? And how does that bear out in a in a sense in, in a working environment? And there's many many ways and many levels and and layers of how that should bear out. Starting with uh, you know having. Mana whenua, some you know talent on 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 in the at the governance level, but also empowering and growing Māori talent and and leadership and and having M- M- Māori in management, a whole lot of things. Yeah. Not just saying the karakia at the beginning and end of hui.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and, and yeah, I I think we all have a role to play in this as well. Which again, it's it's about getting these conversations starting. I yeah. interviewed Anao Masui Henry, who's from Tonga. And right. so that was really interesting because she was describing the just the gap in knowledge between what was possible and what she had been told or known growing up in Auckland, basically bicultural, you know, in New Zealand, but from Tonga. Mm. Um, and one of the things that she said was just not having an awareness of the resources or the people there who could help her on her entrepreneurial journey just as one example. And yeah, it was quite interesting talking with her about that, that that's a real barrier that people don't even know that there's a resource that there's free resources even that, that, where do I go?
1: Yeah. Well, that's all of that's about, um, you know, access and networks. And and if you've grown up, you know, a Pālangi person in in Wellington with professional parents and university educated parents, you're likely to be successful because there's going to be the, in the broader networks that your parents have, you know, it's all of that sort of stuff. So, but, so if you're first in family to go to university and, you know, and, and you're Brown getting, you know, knowing uh, and, and having access to all of that information is so much more harder because you don't have the family and friends around that, say, you know, pālangi kid growing up in Wellington might have with, with, their, with their environment that they've grown, you know?
0: Yeah. It's different yeah, oh, exactly. playing
1: fields. It's not a level playing field.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a great video. You've probably seen it where somebody gets people lining up in a field yeah. and says, right, you're here, you're here, you're here. And, yeah. okay, I want you to race to this point and look at how – far down the track you already are and yeah, yeah I'll try and find it actually and put it as a link in the show notes because I thought it was yeah. quite well done yes uh, yeah well just coming back to you then because I, I love our conversation I love these ones where we go on all these rabbit holes and yeah. and talk about this and then go there but just bringing it back to what you're doing today um mm-hmm. can you describe a little bit more about that um and uh-huh. then I'd love to find out more about this um governance um initiative that you're, the, the, you're helping yes. out with
1: So why don't I focus on governance first. So um, my governance career actually started when I was uh, working at Victoria University and they needed a staff representative on one of the halls of residence, the hall of residence that I had been at in my first two years at Victoria 10 years earlier. Right. And so um, I started on that board. It was Vic, the Victoria House um, board. And, um, and then also later down the track, um, the VSA, the Volunteers Service Abroad Organization, asked me to come onto to their um, council for a period. So I did that. And so while I've been working in, in the pay jobs that I was talking about, um, other governance roles came up. Along the way, I did various stints. I was on the lot, uh, lotteries, Wellington Wairara, WAPA Distribution Committee and various other bits and bobs as I was doing my full-time role. And so um, I've been in governance for over 20 years now. And so when I left Fulbright uh, five and a half years ago, uh, I was already on some boards and I've, that's sort of a, a part of, of what I do now. So the three boards that I'm currently on, uh, first of all, uh, is, is the board of Te Kura, the New Zealand Correspondence School, all right. which is my biggest board role in terms of the entity. So we're the largest school in New Zealand with over twenty twenty to 25,000 students, yeah. a budget, an annual budget of 50 million and a staff of four or 500. Yeah. And um, so that's a well, ministerially...
0: Here's a little intersection of vibes in that I did correspondence school when I was living in America during my right. seventh form year my right grandfather had cancer so we had to go back and live there for nine months mm-hmm. so i did my fruit my yeah mo- most of my seventh form was by correspondence
1: right um, yes
0: sending it all off and <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah from today i'm sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah we do it's all online now Stephen. Yeah, but right. <laughs> yeah so um that's a ministerially appointed board and then i'm also on wellington community trust um so there are 12 or 13 regional um, community trusts and like the Foundation North Trust in Auckland and Rata Foundation in in Christchurch. I'm on Wellington Community Trust that dishes out 3 million a year. Third is the Community Governance Project. That, um, yeah. that I wanted that you wanted me to talk about, and basically i 'm on the i 'm chair of the steering group mm-hmm. that is has been sort of coordinating this project to develop a national strategy to improve community governance in new zealand okay and so i 'm chairing that for my yep. sins, and we 're soon to launch the national action plan, which we hope once implemented will really lift the performance of all those small community sector Um, organizations the little not-for-profits the sports organizations and clubs the the arts you know throughout this we we estimate there's about 500,000 people involved in governance of the community sector oh sorry um yeah five yeah 500,000 governors that involved in in community sector governance yeah and about a hundred thousand organizations so yeah that's the project that we're just about to launch the national action plan of
0: That's really great. And I think I'd heard about that maybe at the end of last year or around then. I think there was a call out for people who wanted to contribute. So I did that and I was on one of the, um, I think it was called the challenge team. So there had been a two-day session and then I was one of the people coming in to say, well, what about this or that? And yeah, it's really interesting to watch and see what will come out of that.
1: Well, there are 150 people involved in the seven design sprints. around seven different topics and um, they come from they came from all over all different sectors and all over new zealand so we think there's been a really awesome process to design what these key actions um should be Mm -hmm. in order for us to really lift the performance
0: yeah that's awesome well we'll put some links in the show notes to some of the work that's going on And I know you've been part of a group that I've been running for um, -for not-for-profits, community sector, NGO type of group. Um, So it'd be great to um, keep that group updated. And yeah, I think that there's a real need there because people come onto boards and that might be their first one and they're presented with a budget or they're presented with a decision and how do we go about making this decision? Yeah, I do quite a bit of work with the IOD on their what's called the company director course. Yes.
1: I'm one
0: of the presenters of the legal section for that.
1: Oh, and, I didn't know that you weren't. Yeah. I, I did the comp, I did the CDC in 2017.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I've only recently started this year. That's great. Um, but it's a as you'd know, it's it's a really great course. Um, it takes you through lots of things, and I often think, wouldn't it be great if we could get some of this content out? wider for the how many thousands of people did you say that's a lot
1: 500,000
0: yeah that's incredible so you
1: imagine you imagine all those um people involved in not-for-profit boards where they do not have the budget to send their governors to do the cdc because i mean the cost is absolutely you know out of out of the um the range of budgets i mean this is the problem um but the other thing i'd question i challenge you on though is that the action the content that you learn on the cdc is very much corporate governance focused and actually when i attended there of the 27 participants there were only four of us who actually came from a non-corporate background. Yeah. And all of the content was full of this very, very sort of private sector, business orientated jargon. Sure. Um, so if we did have a five-day residential course for the not-for-profit sector, then, you know, it would have to be very different because governance in, in, in that, that isn't corporate governance is very, very different in many ways. Yes, it's the same. But actually, it's very different. So it would have to be really contextualized yeah. for the not-for-profit sector and community yeah. sector, which is where my governance focus lies.
0: I understand, yeah. yeah. That makes perfect sense. I actually, when I start that bit of my part of the IOD course, because it's like a four-hour bit on legal, yes. I usually ask people what they're involved in. And yes. many, many of them aren't. They may not be full-time not-for-profit, but at least half of them will raise their hand that they are on a board of, yeah. cancer society or a you know children yes. or whatever it is. So yeah, yeah. There's there's a huge, huge need. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, so when is is it coming up to being finalised? Some of the research and the the results, or will it just be an ongoing project that you? It's res- it's really an
1: ongoing project because basically we launched the national action plan and then the big the big challenge and the big work <laughs> if that makes sense, is actually in the implementation of all those key actions. And right. so where we also need to go out and do and raise some funds to implement those things, especially if we want it to happen nationally. Yep. So um, there's a lot of conversations to be had to be had with a lot with, with potential funders, including government, mm-hmm. um, as well as philanthropic sources And then really talking with key organizations uh, in the community sector and and the community sector itself and all, you know, and and really reaching out to all of those, all those small groups where, where they're going to be the beneficiaries of the, of, of, of the things that we implement.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, that's really good to know about. We'll put some links in the show notes. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to share or talk about?
1: Um. I don't think so. Not, not specifically.
0: Yeah, no, that's perfect. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation because we've talked about such a broad range of things, you know, ranging from your childhood and what that was like, but then coming through what's that meant as you've gone on and what you're doing today. And that's, the, that's why I love doing... I know I turn off some people to the podcast because they are quite long. Yeah. Um, but rather than coming in with the five-minute version this is the chance for people to get to know you and to get to know about you know your parents and, and everything. So mm. I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, um, is there a website we can direct them to? Or
1: Oh, no particular website. I guess the only sort of thing I'd say is I've got a LinkedIn um, profile, but I, I'm, I'm not really an active LinkedIn person, so I don't put a lot of stuff on there. But I do put a lot of stuff out publicly on Facebook.
0: Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Well, what we'll do is we can link to anything you want to in the show notes and then people can find it. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you for this conversation. And also thank you for the challenge that you issued to me about seeds itself, and yeah. making sure that we we are representative and that I, I think for me, it's about who you know, <laughs> yes. So it's, it's simply, you know, I want to find more diverse guests, but it's about who my network is. Yeah so it's been really um helpful to chat with you i've had several guests since we had our first conversation um and yeah that's been really enriching the podcast i think so
1: yeah, yeah. no that's good and 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 hey if there are people listening who do feel like they've got a story that they might want to share and you know and they come from a a diverse, diverse background then they should get in touch with you and be proactive so yeah yeah
0: Yeah, exactly. That's right. But I've enjoyed
1: it, Stephen. Thank you. And thank you for having taken um, my challenge, you know, really positively and, and, and are doing some about something about it.
0: Yeah. Well, I actually, rather than just words, I knew it was important to actually take action. So yeah. uh, Yeah. Vaughn Winietta was on recently talking about his life and growing up with what the Mirai has meant to him. And yeah. uh, And now from uh, about Tonga, and, yeah, I've yeah. got some other people lined up as well that will yeah, be coming good. out in the next few weeks and months. So,
1: nice.
0: Yeah. It's nice. Good. All right. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Lava.
0: Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mere. I know for me there were many things that stood out. I loved hearing about her childhood and growing up with many identities. I think it's fascinating how culture shapes us, and I loved hearing her reflections on that topic. And I wonder how it might shape the conversations that you have with people as well. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, and there's heaps of information at theseeds.nz. Also, in the show notes, I've put some links to things that you might be interested in. Until next time!